Thank you, Michael and Rachel. It's hard not to sing along. <laughs> Beautiful. Have you ever seen your life flash before your eyes before? That saying, of course, refers to a phenomenon people have in near-death experiences. In near-death experiences, we tend, as humans, to briefly reflect upon the extent of our lives. And we rapidly see much of our life, often chronologically and in great detail. Science calls this phenomenon a life review. And it has been experienced by millions of people, some quite intensely. Well, I can't say I've had an intense experience of seeing my life flash before my eyes, but I definitely have experienced the feeling of rapidly reviewing my life in a moment that I thought I might die. The most vivid of these was a time when I was around 20 years old, and I was driving home late at night from a church event downtown. It was a bitterly cold night in the middle of January, with the wind chill around minus 40. Now, some of you this past week might have been thinking that you're looking forward to that coming back. I think you're delusional. (laughs) But anyway, as I drove home that night, I entered the 417 westbound at O'Connor. And I could tell that the road conditions weren't ideal, so I was taking it nice and easy, going very slowly, But just as I got onto the highway, I hit a big patch of black ice. And if you never hit black ice before, I pray that you never have to experience it. It is terrifying. In a split second, my steering wheel lost all control and my car started spinning. And (laughs) it was so scary. And I ended up coming to a stop, hitting the snowbank on the side of the highway, staring into oncoming traffic couldn't believe I wasn't, I wasn't dead already. And I immediately reached over for my cell phone to call 911, but then I looked up and this van was getting on the highway where I had just come, and it hit the exact same patch of ice that I did and started to swerve. And in that moment, my life passed before my eyes. <laughs> and I thought of my life and what had come before, and I thought, well, I've lived a good life, short, But God was good. (laughs) Thankfully, the van was able to regain control before they completely lost it like I had. And I realized quickly that I couldn't stay where I was. And doubly thankfully, my car ended up not being stuck, and I was able to pull right back out and continue my slow journey home. But needless to say, I was shaking the rest of the way home, literally physically shaking from the experience. And near-death experiences like this can really shake us up. Besides making us thankful for our lives, these experiences can also cause us to question how we're living them now. We realize how frail we are and how short our lives are. And we consider some things that we think need to change in our lives. Well, in the scripture that we're going to read today, Jesus' disciples had a near-death experience, or at least so they thought. And this experience really shook them up. And they learned some, thankfully, Jesus actually used the situation to train them and to mentor them and to teach them a lesson. And they learned some extremely valuable lessons about faith and worship and God and how he works in the world. Lessons that I hope that we can learn today just like they did. 
If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 8. You can take a Bible from the pew in front of you if you don't have one. Luke chapter 8 can be found on page 865 in the pew Bibles. Luke chapter 8, we're going to be beginning in verse 22 today. But as you turn there and find your place, I'd like to begin by praying for us. So I ask you today, would you please pray with me as we go to God's Word? Heavenly Father, we pray that as we look into the pages of your Word today, that we would see Jesus. That we would see Jesus for who he really is, not some made-up invention of our own and who we think he is or who we'd like him to be, but who he really is. And I pray that 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 vision of Jesus would cause us to worship you more and to have greater faith in you today. We pray this for each one of our hearts this morning. Help all of us to be convicted by your spirit, brought to our knees in worship, and then encouraged by your care for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today's story is from a short passage in the middle of the Gospel of Luke, which we've been going through together for almost a year now. And over the past few weeks, we saw Jesus teaching his disciples about God's Word and the importance of hearing it properly and then obeying it faithfully in our lives. From all accounts, when we read through the ministry of Jesus, Jesus' ministry was tremendously busy and tiring. He was constantly teaching huge crowds of people and healing the sick and many performing miracles and much more. The demands on his time and attention were intense and relentless. But as we read, we also see clearly that Jesus valued rest. He really did. He understood the importance of rest. So he'd often pull away from the crowds to to either be alone or to only be with the closest friends of his. He set a good example for us of instituting some rhythms of rest in our life. And this was the case on the day that we read about in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. It says this, One day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. Now this lake is speaking of the Sea of Galilee, as it is most commonly called. The Sea of Galilee is a large freshwater lake in the northern part of Palestine and Israel. And if you think about it, I don't think there's many things in our lives that can be quite as relaxing as being out on water, right? It's very relaxing, whether it's through recreational boating or canoeing or kayaking, even swimming or fishing. It's just naturally relaxing. I've gone on a few canoe trips in my time, and I love just being out among nature and the peace and quiet waters and hearing the birds sing around and and the water just gently lapping up on the side of the boat. It's so calming. We aren't told exactly why Jesus wanted to cross the other side of the lake here, but we quickly see that at least one of the reasons was to get some rest. It says... One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. He must have been exhausted. And as his disciples manned the boat, he slept. And he slept deeply. However, the nice, peaceful, quiet voyage across the lake did not remain peaceful for very long. Verse 23 continues this way. 
As they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake. And they were filling with water and were in danger. Other translations call this storm a squall or a fierce gale. The Sea of Galilee is known for being a generally peaceful lake. But it's also known for having vicious mood swings. It goes from peaceful to raging in a matter of seconds. Storms are uncommon, but when they came, they're doozies. And the lake is situated, just the geography a little bit, it's situated 700 feet below sea level. It's actually the lowest freshwater lake in the world. And it's surrounded by a mountainous regions around it, which is a dangerous combination. Cold air was prone to sweep down the sides of the mountains onto the lake in a flash, and it would whip up the waves in a frenzy in little to no time at all. Indeed, another account in this, of this story in the Bible says that the storm came without warning, and no idea was coming. And seemingly in an instant, the disciples found themselves caught up in this storm. Lightning and thunder flashing and rolling around them. They had been rising and falling with the huge ebbs and flows of the waves. Riding high to the crests of one and then crashing down into their wake. They must have had to hold on to different parts of the boat for dear life. Like being on an out of control roller coaster without seatbelts. Maybe they had to tie themselves or lash themselves to the boat in order to keep from being swept overboard. See, they weren't only riding the waves. We see here that they were getting swamped by the waves. The waves were crashing over the sides of the boat and filling with water. And in every spare second, the, the disciples were bailing water, trying to keep the boat from sinking. But they were fighting a losing battle. The boat could only take so much. A shipwreck seemed inevitable. There's something inherently terrifying about a shipwreck, isn't there? Just watch any movie with a shipwreck, such as the Titanic, and you know what I mean. No one likes the idea of dying by drowning, and especially in violent and cold seas. It's terrifying. And so people legitimately lose their minds in the middle of shipwrecks. People are screaming and crying and stumbling around and just freaking out. You also usually see them praying, either pleading with God or cursing Him. It drives us to the end of our ropes. I imagine that this is how the disciples felt, especially the ones who weren't usually fishermen. But here, even the experienced fishermen were fearing for their lives. They apparently had never experienced anything like this storm before. And I'm sure that their lives are flashing before their eyes. Luke tells us these details so matter-of-factly, it, it seems like a terrible understatement. He says, As they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. They were in danger. Thank you, Captain Obvious. <laughs> This is more like they were in petrifying mortal danger. They were sure that they were going to die on this boat ride. And so some of them made their way over to Jesus and desperately cried out. Verse 24, they went and woke him saying, 
Master, Master, we are perishing. We're dying here. We're going to drown. Wait right there. Did you see one of the most shocking details of this story? In verse 24, it says, They went and woke him. Jesus was still asleep. He slept through the storm, through the the boat rocking back and forth, through the waves crashing over the deck, through the rain pelting him, through the disciples screaming, the wind howling. (laughs) How? How was he asleep? He was tired, I guess. (laughs) No, this is more than just deep sleep. This actually tells us something. The fact that Jesus slept through the storm implies something important. See, Jesus had complete and utter trust in his heavenly Father to keep him safe. Complete trust. There is no other satisfactory explanation outside of maybe tranquilization. He trusted God. Jesus knew that it wasn't his time yet. He had a job that he was to complete on earth, and he knew that his father wouldn't let him die at sea. So he had no fear, and he's able to sleep. The contrast between Jesus and his disciples during the storm is striking. Verse 24, And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Mark's account says they cried, Do you not care that we are perishing? Now, there are some definite problems with the disciples' complaint here, which we'll see. But at least they finally realized that they should, oh, I don't know, ask the guy in their boat who performed crazy miracles all the time for help. Seems like a no-brainer for us. But the fact is, they obviously didn't believe Jesus could have done anything to help them. Or else they would have certainly asked him sooner. Regardless, they eventually woke him frantically in a panic. Master, master, we're perishing. No matter how Jesus must have felt waking up to this scene, he quickly sprang into action. It says, they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Now, we'll talk more about this miracle in a minute, but this is absolutely insane. Imagine, imagine how the disciples felt in this situation. After Jesus gets up and does this, must have been in complete shock at what had just happened. They, were, they would have been dripping with lake water and with sweat, with rain. Their muscles hurt. Their eyes hurt. Their ears hurt. They had been through an ordeal, but suddenly everything was calm. Quiet. Peaceful. It was as if they had just been teleported to a different lake or a different time. I imagine they must have been bug-eyed and their jaws were hitting the deck. What just happened? You just did what? In the wake of this storm and 
in Jesus' miracle, there are two good questions that were asked. And these two questions will give us the main points that we need to understand today. And the stunned silence from what Jesus had just done. Jesus turned around to his disciples and he asked this rhetorical question. Verse 25, he said to them, Where is your faith? Where's your faith? There's so much contained in those four words. Here's what we see from them. That Jesus' awesome power should calm our misplaced fears and increase our faith. Jesus' power should erase our wrong fears and radically increase our faith. His awesome power should calm our misplaced fears and increase our faith. Awesome power really doesn't begin to describe how powerful Jesus showed himself to be here. This was undoubtedly one of Jesus' most impressive and definitely dramatic miracles to date. Think about the details of it. Okay, Jesus turned off a storm as easily as we would turn off a light switch. (laughs) He halted an entire weather system in its tracks and made it disappear. He He had to alter jet streams and precipitation and wind gusts and wave heights. And he likely had to even change the temperature and the humidity. He stretched the bounds of nature like an elastic band. He really demonstrated an authority and control over the natural world that way beyond anything that science has ever concocted even today. Way beyond. Do you realize how above human this was? We've got a little baby bathtub at home that we bathe our newborn son in. And usually to fill it up with water, I put it into our bigger bathtub, fill it with water, and then lift it out and put it either onto a sink or a toilet or somewhere where we can easily wash our son. Now, as I lift up this little tub that's maybe around 20 pounds or so, I lift it up, and it is almost impossible to keep the water from splashing out. You know what I mean? It's hard to balance the water as it splashes back and forth and to stay completely still. And I have to wait for all the little waves to, to calm down before continuing. Now think about that. I can't even control the waves in a tiny little bathtub. And Jesus controlled the waves on a huge lake. Not to mention the wind and the rain. And he did all of this by merely speaking. Verse 24 says that he rebuked the wind and the waves. Very similar to a couple previous miracles we saw back in Luke 4, where he rebuked an evil spirit in an exorcism, and then he rebuked a fever in a healing. And by rebuking, he really made this miracle into a confrontation of sorts. Him versus the storm. He told the storm off as if it were a living thing, even though it wasn't, in order to dramatically show his power over nature. Think about this, okay? If he had this kind of vast power, do you think he even needed to speak? No. He could have just held up his hand or or maybe thought about having the storm stop. But he spoke. He wanted to show his power 
with his words. And so he spoke, as another passage says, peace, be still. And the wind and the waves astonishingly obeyed. Verse 24 again, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. This would have been a crazy scene, to see a gale disappear into thin air. The storm had come on suddenly, but now even quicker, the storm ceased immediately. Like a military commander giving a firm order to his subordinates, Jesus commanded the storm what to do. And like soldiers were required to obey, the storm had to obey. That's because Jesus' words were the words of God himself. He commanded, his command came from God. I don't think that it's a coincidence that Luke puts this story right after a string of stories that emphasize the need for us to obey God's word. If Luke underscored what he was saying earlier, that if the wind and the waves obey him, how much more should we? This miracle is so impressive that some would say it's too impressive. Some would say the fact that it's so amazing makes it more unbelievable. But I would say this, that if you believe that God exists, I know that's assuming these, but if you believe that God exists, like most people do, then miracles aren't just believable, but they should be expected. Because God is supernatural. He is not like us. But he cares about us. He cares about this world that he created. And so he intervenes. And if a supernatural God is intervening in a natural world, there's going to be some supernatural things. And even if you don't believe that God exists, you have to wrestle with the fact that this story comes from a highly respected and reputable historian who was not given to fancy. This is a very historical account. And if anything, this miracle adds weight to the historical truth about Jesus and who he was. And in the light of this kind of power, it should cause our fears to cease. We all have storms in our lives. We've all got them. They come in all shapes and sizes, physical, relational, Emotional, financial, material, occupational, educational, sinful, many more. And when these storms arise, our first instinct is to be afraid. It's to worry. To worry about what the future holds. Or how a situation will work out. Or how we're going to make ends meet. Or or whether a relationship that was broken can be restored. Or how to make things right. or, Or how to change your own emotional state. We worry. In Matthew's account of the story, he records Jesus asking a different question first. Even before he performed the miracle, he got up from his nap and he said, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? 
they were, think about what they were scared of. They must have been scared of the storm. They're probably afraid of being hurt. Maybe they were afraid of their boat getting wrecked. They were certainly afraid of dying. You can see that easily. But once Jesus' power was displayed, those fears had to evaporate. The same should go for us. When we realize Jesus' power, when we come to grips with who it is that we worship, we should calm our fears. What do we have to fear anyway? If the God of the universe is on our side, whom shall we fear? We've got to realize how powerful Jesus is and let that erase our fears. And I said misplaced fears in this point because those are the fears that Jesus' power abates. We fear so many wrong things. And it's easy to fear them, don't get me wrong. But we fear nature and pain and destruction and emotional distress and then death, of course. And when we fear these things, they are misplaced fears. In the long run, if you think about them, None of these things can truly and permanently hurt us. None of them. We see in Jesus' question that our fears are intrinsically related to our faith. If you have little faith, why are you so afraid? And after this miracle, in this passage, verse 25, he said to them, where is your faith? He rebuked the storm, and then he turns around and gently rebukes his disciples. But imagine being the disciples here. After all that they had just been through, hearing Jesus' words. If I had just busted my rear to try to save all of our lives and was terrified for my life, and then Jesus comes to me and says, where's your faith? I probably would be more than just a little bit annoyed, incredulous. Are you kidding me? Anyone in their right mind would have been freaking out. But here's the difference. Not everyone had Jesus in the boat with them. And really, they should have known better. They should have known who Jesus was by now. By this time, they had seen Jesus work miracle after miracle. They had seen Jesus forgive sins, something that only God was allowed to do. They had seen Jesus exercise demons, and these powerful demons turn tail and run at his word. And they'd even seen Jesus raise the dead. They should have known Jesus was the Messiah, and even more than that. They should have trusted that God would have protected them. Norval Geldenheis says, How could they have feared that God would allow his son, the promised redeemer, and his disciples to perish? How could they? Mark A., as we said earlier, tells us they question his care. Do you not care that we're perishing? And Jesus is like, where's your faith? Don't you know that I care for you? Don't you know that? Instead of having faith, 
They tried to do everything by their own power first. And the fact that Jesus was their last resort speaks to their attempted self-sufficiency. And self-sufficiency is the opposite of faith. It's the opposite of the gospel. Trying to do things on your own. Jesus asked the question, where's your faith? And I believe we need to ask the same question of ourselves. Where is my faith? Jesus' disciples had every reason to trust him through the storm. We have even more so. They had seen Jesus perform miracles. We've personally experienced him transforming our hearts. They had seen Jesus claim to forgive sins. But we know that Jesus died in order to forgive you. They had seen Jesus raise the dead. But we know that Jesus rose from the dead himself. If you question either God's care or his power, you have to look at the cross and the empty grave. We see it most vividly there. See for yourself and have faith that he has the power to save you. In reality, we're all in a shipwreck of sin, and we need a rescue. Thank God that he sent Jesus to be our rescue. You've never taken the opportunity to trust in Jesus' power. You need to today. Without it, you are powerless to save yourself, even if you think you aren't. You will end up one day at the end of your rope, calling out to Jesus in desperation. And he'll say, where's your faith? Call on his name today. Believe in him. Turn from your sins. Trust his power. I'd love to help you do this if you've never done it before. Please come talk to me after the service. We need to trust his power to save us. Jesus died in order to love us, to demonstrate his love for us, and yet we question his care. How ridiculous is that? When health issues spring up in our lives, we wonder if God cares about us, our bodies. When financial struggles happen, we worry that God is ignoring us or forgetting us. When someone we love passes away, we can blame God or wonder if he loves us. If God really loved me, he wouldn't have taken my grandma When we see disasters happen around the world, like the floods in Alberta or the, the train accident in Quebec, or much worse, we, can, we start to question whether God cares anymore, or even if he exists. Whenever a crisis comes on, it is easy to panic and worry and doubt, be overwhelmed by the situation. Where is our faith? Have we completely forgotten Jesus' power and love? Have we forgotten it? 
Now, don't get me wrong. This story is not a promise that God will calm all of our storms. It's not a promise. But, do we have faith that he'll take care of us? Do we have faith that he's in control? All the storms of life are under God's sovereign care and control. Jesus was the one who suggested crossing the lake. God wasn't surprised by the storm. And he won't keep us out of every storm. Sometimes he may even guide us into them. But he'll always, he always has a caring purpose in the storms. To test our faith and to train our souls. J.C. Ryle says this. He says, By affliction, God teaches us many precious lessons, which without it we should never learn. By affliction, he shows us our emptiness and weakness, drawing us to the throne of grace, purifies our affections, weans us from the world, and makes us long for heaven. In the resurrection morning, we shall all say, It is good for me that I was afflicted. We shall thank God for every storm. Shall thank God for every storm. Luke finishes up this miracle account with one more powerful question that was asked. But it wasn't Jesus who asked this question. It was his disciples. And they didn't ask Jesus the question, like you might expect. They asked each other. Verse 25 finishes this way. Jesus said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? This really is the climax or the culmination of this passage. Jesus' power and authority caused people to wonder, Who is he? Who is Jesus? And and through the disciples' response, we see a final implied point for us, and that's this, that Jesus' awesome authority should evoke appropriate fear and increase our worship. When we see Jesus for who he is, it should cause godly fear and increase our worship of him. If you don't remember the difference that I explained before between power and authority, power is the ability to exercise authority, and authority is the right to exercise power. They go together. But what Jesus' disciples were marveling about here was Jesus' authority. They were astonished that he had the right to exercise that kind of power. But their initial emotion wasn't only astonishment. It was fear. You see that? It says, And they were afraid, and they marveled. Earlier, we saw they had been afraid of the storm. They were probably afraid of injury, and they were afraid of death. But not anymore. Those threats were gone. So what were they afraid of now? They were actually afraid of Jesus. They're afraid of Jesus, sheer power that he displayed. 
I said earlier that Jesus' power and authority should erase fear, should get rid of them. But now I'm saying it should cause fear? Don't, Don't those contradict each other? No, not really. They don't at all. There is a godly type of fear, a good type of fear. And the Bible calls this the fear of God. All other fears that we have can be misplaced or lacking in faith. The fear of God isn't. Did Jesus want to evoke fear here? Well, I think he probably did. The fear of God. He wanted to erase the other fears and keep that one. Jesus said in Matthew 10, another instance of this, He says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And yet he goes on to say a couple verses later, fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. The fear of God and the lack of fear of anything else are not contradictory. In fact, it's 100% appropriate. It's holy and godly. We should be awed by God to the extent of being afraid of Him. In verse 25, they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? That He commands even winds and water and they obey Him. Basically, who on earth is in our boat? Probably in sailor's language. <laughs> A few extra words thrown in there. They were thinking, they weren't thinking, wow, Jesus is powerful. I'm so glad I'm on his team. No, they were thinking, wow, Jesus is powerful. And if he can do that to a storm, what can he do to me? And they ask, who is Jesus' room? They totally underestimate it. Luke leaves their question unanswered. Meant it to be pondered, to be thought about. Who is this man? Their question implies something amazing. When they said, who then is this, that he commands even winds and water and they obey him, it implied that Jesus had to be something much greater than any ordinary man. Who can actually command natural forces like this and have them obey? Who can? Who has the power to do whatever he wants like this in an instant? Who can control the weather in the manner that Jesus just did? There's only one answer. And that's God himself. No one else could have done what Jesus just did. We don't know if the disciples fully realized this. Probably not. They must have had some inkling, though. It was the only answer to their question. This man, in their boat, though fully a man who needed to sleep, was also fully This was the creator of the wind and the waves and weather systems. 
This was the God who had separated water from atmosphere and sea from land. This was the God who had split the sea for Moses, who sent storms on the earth. Consider the story against what was taught in the Old Testament. In Psalm 65, it said, God stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. In Psalm 89, 9, it says, God, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. The story here in Luke essentially ends with the disciples fearing God and worshiping. They might not have known the full story, but that's how they responded. It says they were afraid and they marveled. And marveling, if you think about it, is really a form of worship. Other versions say that they were amazed or that they were filled with amazement. And their amazement could not be contained. So they marveled. When you hear of God's power, does your worship of him increase? What do I mean by this? Well, do you find yourself more in awe of God daily? More in love with him? That despite his vast power, he would love us? You find yourself marveling at God's grace for you, stunned by his goodness. Can you not help but speak of him to others, praising him for what he's done? Do you burst into prayers of thankfulness or songs of praise all the time? Just can't contain it. Do you gather with the saints to worship Jesus passionately, unreservedly? We marvel all the time. We marvel when we see a good movie. Oh man, Despicable Me was awesome. We marvel when we hear where we see an amazing sports play. Hey, did you see the highlights last night? Or when we hear an inspiring story in the news. Go to someone and say, you got to read the story of the, the two boys who chased down a kidnapper and saved a little girl. When was the last time you can say you marveled about God? Our prayer lives like lack passion. We're apathetic in our obedience. Find our love growing cold. We aren't that excited about Jesus, so we don't speak much about him to others. If our Sunday morning worship times reflect our hearts, Sometimes I wonder if some of us have been changed at all. Cross our arms, our hands in our pockets, mumble lyrics just passionately at a screen. If we sing at all. Does that sound like the kind of worship that God could quell hurricanes to destroy? I don't care if you don't like music or emotional stuff. Or the way that we worship God, including our emotions and our postures, reveals our hearts. 
if we hardly ever find our hearts move deeply to worship God, there's a problem. We obviously aren't very awestruck by God's power at who he is that he would care for us. Like I said earlier, the the point of this story isn't that Jesus will calm all our storms. He might not. So many preachers get this story completely wrong and say fluffy things like, hey, you gotta you gotta put your trust in Jesus to calm your storm. Or he'll say, Peace be still over your heart. No. The main point of the story is for us to see Jesus' power and authority as God and be awed by that. That we would fear the right things and not fear the wrong things. And that our faith in him would increase and that our worship of him would increase dramatically. To close, I want to read from Psalm 107 which has a striking parallel in many ways to Luke 8. As I read, pay close attention to this passage, and pay close attention to the movement that it goes through. It begins with people fearing a storm at sea. Okay? And then it continues on to God stilling the waves and the storm, and then the result is that God is fervently worshipped. Listen to this in Psalm 107, verse 23. It says, some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. May we do that. Let us thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. To us. Let us extol and praise him with all our Storms can be scary. They can be terrifying. But we must take faith and have no fear because our God is stronger. He is in control. He is sovereign. He cares for us. He no longer sleeps. He has power and authority and he deserves all of our praise and worship. This is Jesus. May we see him for who he is and worship him accordingly. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, like I prayed earlier, may our faith increase. You know that we doubt. We know, you know that we struggle. But may we trust you. May we have full faith in the midst of our storms that you are in control and that you care for us. And when you deliver us, like you have delivered us from our sins, may we praise you and rejoice in your goodness with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.